Welcome to Therapy on the Cutting Edge, a podcast for therapists who want to be up to date on the latest advancements in the field of psychotherapy. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Sutton, a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. Today, I'll be speaking with Laura Petracek, PhD, who is a clinical psychologist, speaker, and the author of Anger Workbook for Women, How to Keep Your Anger from Undermining Your Self-Esteem, Your Emotional Balance, and Your Relationships. She has over 30 years of experience and specializes in dialectical behavioral therapy and other evidence-based therapies for alcohol and substance use, mood disorders, and anger discontrol issues. Her other areas of expertise include working with children and adolescents with ADHD, oppositional defiant disorder, autism spectrum disorder, and other learning disabilities. She's a past clinician at San Quentin Federal Prison and currently is in the process of writing the book, Pain is Inevitable, Suffering is Optional, Dialectical Behavioral Therapy Skills for Alcoholics and Addicts. Let's listen to the interview. Well, hi, Laura. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Keith. Thanks for having me. Definitely. So Laura, uh, so we've known each other uh, for some time. You had, uh, we had shared an office together for many years in San Francisco. And uh, I've seen, you know, uh, some of the books that, that you had in the office of uh, one particular you authored and you came to some of the workshops that I had. And now uh, we're working together as part of the, the Institute. Um, and I, I wanted to bring you on to, to learn a little bit more about and kind of share with others uh, your work and, you know, working with um, uh, there's a number of different topics. I mean, you've done some work with uh, families and uh, with relationship violence. You've authored a book on um, women and uh, anger. Um, you're also in, the, you know, in the middle of uh, another book on working with uh, substance abuse and integrating some DBT work and so on. Um, but to start with, I'd love to just hear, you know, I know actually bits and pieces that we've talked about of your background and, and your work and so on, but yeah, I would love to hear kind of how you got where you are now and kind of the, you know, evolution of your, your work and your thinking and, and such. Um, but yeah. Okay. I mean, how far do you want to go back? Wherever you feel like the story begins. Okay. Um, um well, sometimes I wonder if I chose this field or it chose me. Mm. I um, entered rehab when I was 17 years old mm. and my family was totally against it. I luckily had someone who helped me get emancipated as a minor to sign myself in treatment. And so separating from my family and getting clean and sober was the first huge step of my journey into recovery and into health, mm -hmm. uh, mental health, physical, social. And then from there, I started, uh, there was a two-year program for chemical dependency in Minneapolis. So I, I went through that program. I got my certificate. I continued to get my bachelor's degree in psychology. <clears throat> and during my uh, senior year, um, when I was about I guess a little over four years sober. I didn't really know what was happening, although I knew I was feeling worse and worse. And my therapist kept asking, um, you know, are you suicidal? Are you depressed? And then I um, called my sponsor like three in the morning one time and she took me to, I told her I didn't wanna to go to a psychiatric ward because unfortunately mm -hmm. my aunt had hung herself in a psychiatric ward. So she took me to a rehab and um, 
there they did testing and found out uh, at that time it was called manic depression. Mm-hmm. And so I was diagnosed with manic depression, put on lithium, although initially I had a lot of resistance because at that time in AA, you weren't, con- you know, this is 45 years ago, you weren't right. considered clean and sober uh, if you were taking medication. So yeah. that was a big struggle uh, for me. But then my Tuesday night women's group came in, they were kind of my adopted family of choice. And they mm-hmm. um, they said, look, you, you can't leave unless you take it. You're we still see you as sober and mm-hmm. I celebrated my three, actually it was my third year, my three years and they got me a nice t-shirt. And so, um, you know, I continued on into individual therapy. I was recruited from New York city from a program uh, that was called Sappho house. And, um, mm-hmm. oh, I came out as a lesbian in recovery. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that had a lot to do with my, you know, my drinking and drug career was all of four yeah. years. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I think that's why I escalated so quickly, along with there's a huge family genetic component too, yeah. coming from an alcoholic because family. Because you weren't, you weren't out at, at the time or you weren't? I think, no, I wasn't out, but also I was from an alcoholic family. So that mm-hmm. yeah. escalated things as well. And mm-hmm. um, so I was recruited to be director of the program at age 22. Oh, wow. uh, I kind of bit off more than I could chew. I wasn't quite ready, but boy, I, I learned quick. Um, I, I mean, I was younger than all the staff members. What was the program? It was called Sappho House. It was a drug and alcohol program for oh, lesbian wow. women. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, um, but it was really... Uh, what should I say? Is very challenging. Um, is very eye-opening. Mm-hmm. Working with uh, the African American community, Latino community, basically for the first time, our Latino community. So it really opened my eyes. Working with women, you know, who grew up in poverty. So a lot of uh, cultures and situations that I hadn't worked with as a clinician. Yeah. Um, and then from there. Uh, decide I want to be in private practice or uh, I entered what's called the Gestalt Associates for Psychotherapy mm. in New York City. It was a four year uh, therapy training program and it was like one of the best decisions I made. I wow. really learned how to do therapy at that because they did videos and one my mirrors and mm. it was really a very intensive, excellent program. <clears throat> so I did that and my social work at the same time simultaneously. And then I got my LCSW, um, got a full practice going. I was working at a school, but it didn't take long. I got tons of referrals. Mm -hmm. And so then I did that for a number of years. And and then this was when the adult child of alcoholic and codependent was really uh, prominent in the therapy community, recovering Mm -hmm. community. And I had sent out letters all over the country wanting to set up a center with someone else focusing on that. Mm. And I met a therapist in Seattle. So he and I um, started the uh, program Pacific Center Northwest for uh, people in recovery. Um, Mm. So we had tons of workshops. We offered tons of workshops, individual group therapy, 
um, at that time. Now I'm supervising interns. Um, so it was, it was really an exciting time. Mm. Um, I, uh, so I was in a relationship for nine years with someone in New York. And then when I wanted to move for this next venture, she, anyway, we split up. And then I moved to Seattle and I met someone there. And uh, so her, she was also in the field. Um, but then I wanted to go get my PhD. Mm. <laughs> I sometimes say in uh, the rooms of AA that uh, school became my drug of choice. <laughs> so, <laughs> so anyway, um, and then the center, well, there was, that's a long story there, but um, so that was kind of phasing out uh, mm. for different reasons. And then I heard about the program at CIIS and decided, oh, that's where I want to get my PhD. Oh, so then I moved uh, uh, Institute of Individual Studies, right. So then I moved here and pursued my doctorate degree. Um, let me see. And then I met my future wife soon after, uh, like maybe a year. No, no, I wasn't even finished. I was doing my pre-doc, no, post-doc. Mm -hmm. So I graduated in 96 with my PhD, um, did my postdoc at the Golden Gate Medical Examiners where I learned a lot about testing, people coming in for SSI evals, Mm -hmm. so any kind of, yeah, any kind of disability you could think of. Um, mm -hmm. And there's kind of a funny little story there. So, and I know, you know, this is psychologist, like you're working full time in an internship, and then you got to type up stuff at night. Yep. So uh, I guess I had fallen asleep. My mm -hmm. partner's like, and, and we looked at my report, and it was like, Joey XYZ XYZ and then it said and then I walked to the ATM <laughs> well, I must have been dreaming and I had oh, a whole other story but anyway yeah um yeah so uh finished that oh let me see got married had a child started mm -hmm. working in um a program out in Marin, um, the Marin Center for Women. Uh -huh. uh, so I was director of that program. Yeah, let me see. Um, so doing a lot of chemical dependency. Also, that was when um, I started doing trauma work, which was pretty new at that time. Mm. Um, a lot of women in recovery, as you um, you know, are well aware of, have experienced trauma. So. It wasn't exactly training, but I sought out different supervisors uh, mm -hmm. that I had read that had worked with trauma. To, um, and you were saying new at that time, like the field of trauma was developing more? Yeah, it was developing more, but it was still really in its infancy. I mean, this is uh, 99. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so let's see. Uh, so then working, learning, taking mm -hmm. all these workshops. Uh, I worked in forensics for a while and forensic psychology, worked at San Quentin State Prison. Mm -hmm. um, I set up their whole. So what's interesting, when I started there, they only offered individual therapy. I said, mm -hmm. what about groups? 
Yeah. Oh, no, no. We, the groups, because uh, it, it was really run on a psychiatric model. Sure. And um, so I uh, developed their whole group work program. So CBT mm. groups, DBT groups, uh, parole planning groups, oh, wow. um, parenting groups. So mm. like 10 different groups. And it really flourished very well. And I really enjoyed um, at that time. Now I'm supervising doctoral interns and doing the um, that's kind of my that was my baby. And so I, that was pretty sure. much focus. Yeah. Um, and then let me see. Oh, and so and, and at during this time, I have a small practice on this side. I kind of always have. Um, mm -hmm not like in New York, I had a full practice, but I, um, I found that trying to, it just didn't work with uh, having a child and I didn't want to work evenings. And at sure. that time it seemed, it was very challenging to get people to come before five. Mm -hmm. So um, I just decided to get a regular job. So that's why I mm -hmm. only had a few clients um, for quite a long time. Um, so I could be at home or pick her up after school that sort of thing sure yeah and um so then fast forward into 2007 no 2017 my daughter graduated from high school mm -hmm. and she went to uh college across the country mm -hmm. um we were very close and it was just a huge loss for me, her leaving. Mm -hmm. I, I sank into such a despair. It was really no. not good. Um, so I increased therapy from once a week to twice a week. And my psychiatrist worked with me on my medication. And then they suggested, or he suggested, kind of a newer alternative to deal with depression called TMS. Mm -hmm. um, transcranial or transmagnetic cranial <laughs> um, <laughs> system, something like that. Yes, I, I always forget the acronym too yeah. while we're talking. Um, unfortunately, this totally backfired for me. Oh no. Yeah. Transcranial so, magnetic stimulation. Yes, that's, thank mm -hmm. you. Um, I was back East uh, with my wife we're at Lena's volleyball tournament. And I, I told Margo, something's terribly wrong. Mm -hmm. Something is really wrong. And uh, it was probably the 12th session I had, or the 12th uh, treatment I'd had. Yeah. So it, it, it flipped me into, uh, or triggered me into a full blown manic episode. Oh, wow. And it just scared. I mean, here we are 3000 miles away from all my support. Mm -hmm. from my partner, my wife's support, you know, I didn't want to tell my daughter, she's in the middle of this huge tournament. Yeah. So as soon as I got home, you know, uh, so my therapist, so my psychiatrist, and, uh, and then I told him like, look, this, I've been fine on lithium since I'm, you know, uh, what, 21, and now yeah. I'm 59, and uh, never so this is directly related I know it is mm -hmm. and then I did some research and I don't know that's kind of a whole nother story it turns out 
only the machine is approved by the FDA. It's not approved to work for bipolar, especially bipolar disorder. Oh boy. Yeah. So, so I took, I went on disability. Mm -hmm. I, um, my therapist suggested I go through the Kaiser DBT program for emotional regulation. And then during this program, uh, Marsha Linehan has this saying, but they also have this in 12 step. I don't know who said it first, Mm. but um, pain is inevitable. Suffering is optional. I said, oh, that's what they said. That's from AA. Yeah. And then just a light bulb went off like, oh my God, there's so many people in the program who suffer from mental illness or mental health issues. And I mean, here we are years later, it's still unfortunately not talked about or not encouraged to be talked about. Mm-hmm. And these folks are really suffering, um, you know, thinking, oh, I just have to do another step and then I'll, you know, I'll be better. Mm-hmm. Like one guy I, I met had uh, said, oh, a sponsor told me to do the four step five times and that's going to solve my anxiety problem. I said, no, mm-hmm. that's not. And he's not a therapist. So that's mm-hmm. another issue, too. But I thought. And so I just kind of let that percolate for a while and then uh, went back to work. And then the pandemic came about a year after I went back to work and I was like, ah, um, and I worked for the school, so I was uh, not laid off, but there wasn't really any work. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I thought, oh, I, I want to write this book. Mm-hmm. So I think this would be really valuable, uh, you know, connecting the DBT skills with the corresponding step and, and the, like a first step concepts with uh, several DBT skills. Yeah. And so that's how I'm going through the whole book. Oh, is, or that's cool. my outline for the book. Uh-huh. Is, um, you know, first I talk about my own story, just mm. like I shared with you, you know, yeah. pretty briefly, only a few pages. And then I go on to, um, you know, talk about my years in recovery and how, wow, even though it's funny, I've taken, I was looking through my files, I've, I started in, I think it was 2004 taking DBT workshops. So wow. I've taken DBT training for, I don't know, like, what is that? 15, 16 years, yeah. but it's different being on the professional side. Yeah. You well, know, I, was actually, I was wondering about that. Cause I know in my own experience, you know, as therapists, we also have life and life happens. Yeah. And, you know, we have periods where things are kind of running smooth and periods where we go through difficult times in our, in our own life. And I think that it, at least, I don't know, it sounds like, you know, I've also had the experience where I get so much more insight into sometimes the, the experience of my clients or also about kind of applying some of the things that I've learned or even used with my clients in such a, in a, in a deeper way than, than maybe yes. even ever before. Um, and, and kind of like you're saying, like having the training and knowing it and using it, but then when you go through that experience or having a crisis or whatever it might be, and then actually kind of integrating it, it's, it's just a, a more deeper experiential experience of, of using, um, these tools, these kind of modalities of helping. Yeah. And I think, um, 
I mean, that's totally right on because I, um, you know, a couple of clients I'm working with um, through IAP have bipolar mm. and, uh, but they, they're not familiar, you know, they, they're in, in, not individual, but I forget the name of the group at Kaiser, but it's not, oh, it's IOP. So it's not DBT, um, but it's mainly process and they're not really learning a lot of skills. Um, mm. So I'm teaching them DBT along with their, uh, you know, going, having, uh, going to this IOP group and seeing the psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, you know, they're finding it helpful. Uh, and then I've been talking to, you know, different people in the program about my book and they're like first readers. Yeah. And they're saying they think this is going to be really invaluable because mm-hmm. Like AA, you know, is is dated in a sense. It's 80 years old. Yeah. A lot of the language, uh, especially like when I worked in the prison, they're like, Dr. P, what does this, is this mm-hmm. saying? <laughs> so they, you know, it's not really uh, reader friendly, so to speak. Um, and uh, there's certain tools from each step, which is helpful. But now it's 80 years later, there's so many more tools. Yeah. So why not? integrate that into the steps or at least Mm -hmm. do a parallel process which is kind of what I've done I've done different graphs and then I explain the parallels and then I give examples um and then I offer then I'm teaching the dbt skills Mm -hmm. because those are relatively new or new for folks um when a lot of with the 12 steps um you know is also that you know, the first step is that it hasn't been working trying to figure this out on my own or do it my way. So I really need to kind of realize that I, I am powerless and accept that and just kind of go on the track here and kind of follow the steps and, you know, kind of do it this other way that has worked for, for other folks, um, which I think is great. And so it sounds like you're taking what has been working for 80 years you know, in these different steps and so on, and then also kind of enhancing it with also the the, the research on, you know, kind of uh, the, the dialectical behavioral therapy research and techniques and so on that can actually kind of enhance that work. Right. And I found through my research for this book, so uh, Bill W., who's like, you know, one of the two major uh, people at Start AA, Bill W. and Dr. Bob, he went through a debilitating depression for almost four mm-hmm. years. Yeah. He actually um, worked with uh, Carl Jung very briefly. Oh, wow. And, um, and at the end of, uh, well, he wasn't finished with therapy, but he said, I really feel there needs to be a component um, of, he didn't say therapy. What was the word he used? Um, a component of introspection, psycho, um, not analysis, but uh, psychotherapy for lack Mm -hmm. of uh, of the term at that time, um, that really would complement the steps. Mm -hmm. So he really was in a way to me talking about adding something like DBT to the 12 steps. Yeah. Because here's someone who was like the father of AA Mm-hmm. He did all the steps and he was suicidal. Yeah. 
And, you know, that's not discussed. It's, it's, you just do these steps and you get to step 12 and you're happily ever after. Not quite mm -hmm. so simple, sure. but kind of along those lines. Um, and this story is not really well known about him. Um, so, and I, uh, I, so funny, actually, I, I don't know if I've ever told you this. I know we've talked about that. I have family uh, that, that are very involved with uh, 12 steps and I think very highly of the 12 step work. Uh, my uncle actually wrote and published a book called The Writing of the Big Book. I don't know if you, which is actually, oh. the, which is actually the story of the, you know, the basically the writing of the big book and and Bill W. and Dr. Bob's experience as they're kind of putting it together. And he had manuscripts with notes and so on from it that he worked off of and and research. But uh, that's so interesting. Um, oh, I really love to. Um, and, and and your uncle's name, Keith. Uh, it's uh, William Shaberg. S H A B is in boy. Uh, S T H A B E R G. Okay. Um, Great. I'm gonna. I wanna. But yeah, that would be so interesting. For more, um, I'll get you guys in touch research. through that conversation because I. Oh, great! Yeah. I would really appreciate it because. Uh, because yeah, this is this is what's um well, it's I mean, part of the intent of the big book. Yes, and that, but yet that intent, that's where it stayed, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. And even today, you know, I'll celebrate 46 years this September. Wow. Um, even today at meetings. Someone will say, oh, I'm, you know, maybe not suicidal, but, oh, I'm just really depressed or, oh, I'm really anxious. And some people recommend outside help. Thank you. But some people say, oh, you know, I felt like that. I just called people and I, um, and not that that doesn't help. Um, yeah. you know, take a warm bath. Some of those but, things can be very helpful. Yeah, kind they're of low level using those tools and- Yeah, you know, but a lot of um, people could really benefit. I remember I went to this one conference and I was talking to this woman and her husband was in AA for a long time. And then she said he had quit taking antidepressants and he killed himself like six months later. Oh. And he stopped taking them because he felt like he wasn't truly sober. And I said, oh, that's just so maddening to me that this is still, there's still the stigma. So I think yeah. that's also a big reason um, I wrote the book, not just uh, the stigma mental health, of mental health in AA, but also you know society as a whole, and also um, about mental health practitioners not talking about if they're in recovery uh, from yeah. mental illness. Um, that's a big no-no uh, or whatever. So, um, you know, for all these reasons, that's why I'm writing this book. And, and I think it's great because mm. that word is perfect. What William said, the intent was also to have this parallel psychotherapy um, dialogue or material and it's not there. Yeah, definitely. You know, I'm, I'm wondering too about, um, can you tell me a, bit, a little bit about your, your last work too? I know that you yep. also, you know, did uh, your book on uh, women and anger. Oh, right. Sure. And um, I'd be interested in kind of, yeah, how how your 
your thinking or writing is evolving. And I know we were talking too that you had worked with um, actually one of the other folks that I interviewed, uh, John Hamill and his work yeah. around um, relationship violence. Um, can you right. tell me a little bit about that and how that kind of plays into the, the evolution of your thinking and work? So I did my um, pre-doc in Seattle mm -hmm. at Harborview Hospital in their um, anger management and psychiatry program. Mm -hmm. And at that time I hadn't decided on what I was doing my dissertation on. And my supervisor, Dr. Mayero, said, um, you know, we're getting a lot of calls from women. Um, Cause it was strictly, their program was just for men, the, the mm -hmm. anger management side. Yeah. The mental health was separate. But anyway, um, he goes, I wonder if you, you know, how would you feel about uh, starting a women's group? And maybe you could do, you know, do your research on that, your dissertation on women in anger. Yeah. And I said, oh, I think that's a great idea. I love the idea. And so we were on the third floor and the second floor of um, the hospital was the STD unit. And so this woman had found out that her boyfriend had given her STD. And uh, when she found that out, she kind of went ballistic on him. So security was called oh, wow. and they brought her up to the third floor where I was and, and said, we're looking for Dr. Bedrachik. And they, so she was my first client. Oh, wow. And, um, and I got several clients directly just from the hospital. Like one time, there was like a little fender bender outside and, and the two folks went, you know, going on at each other. It's your fault, it's your fault. Ah! And um, so security brought the woman upstairs. <laughs> You're the go-to person. To... <laughs> um, and then uh, luckily, um, or I'm not sure if that right word is, but my sister who's an art therapist also lived in Seattle. And I asked if she could uh, come um, like once every, I don't know, four weeks to do an art therapy part mm -hmm. of the group. And so that's in my dissertation as well. And also in my book that I found art therapy is definitely a good tool. Mm -hmm. um, it's, a, it's a therapeutic tool, a way for women to express themselves uh, where maybe their verbal aspect or writing it just still doesn't get it out. Um, sure. Actually, I had women um, pick up photography mm -hmm. uh, and they would bring in their pictures to express how they felt. Mm -hmm. Or um, writing, journaling was a big thing. Okay. Um, and I didn't, you know, uh, I wasn't really quite sure. I mean, I, I had different books I used for the men. Um, in their anger program, but there was nothing for women. And so what I initially did was just so, you know, like, here, let's say this is the anger workbook for men. Sure. And then I just kind of cut and paste the anger workbook for women uh -huh. <laughs> and then Xerox pages. And I'm like, no, I, this is different clinically from what this, my research is showing for women than for men. Mm -hmm. And so then I started gearing my group manual differently. So, mm -hmm. for example, for men, the issue is primarily power and control. Mm -hmm. But that's not it. For women, I mean, that's one of them. But I also found 13 other major uh, triggers for women in their anger. Mm 
which had nothing to do with power and control. It had to do with, for example, um, when they see someone, uh, you know, if their child is being hurt by someone, uh, if they're feeling, if there's some sense of injustice, Mm -hmm. if they're um, feel disrespected, I can't remember all months top of my head. Okay. Um, yeah, so so then this from there, based on some research that you were doing. Yeah, this is on my research. Yeah. 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 A little bit about that. Okay, so my research, I was very familiar with the research on men and anger, but there wasn't a lot about women and anger. So I re- you know, read all I could, mm-hmm. and then. Um, at first it was kind of a Likert scale, like I was, okay. So this one, uh, I was angry because, you know, Johnny uh, disrespect me. Uh, my mm-hmm. husband said the food smelled terrible or, or whatever. And so then um, mine was a qualitative uh, dissertation. So at this time, what's it called? CPSS, the software was pretty new. Or SPSS, uh-huh. Oh yeah, yeah SPSS, thank you. I, I remember that from grad <laughs> school. <laughs> oh, okay. Lots of time with that SPSS, go, yeah, go oh, on. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. So then putting all the info in, the different words, and then at the time I was actually teaching and um, I just kind of hold myself up in my office for a month. Mm. I just would go out to vending machines or they didn't have DoorDash at the time, but maybe walk down the street, but I thought I have got to live and breathe this dissertation to get it done. Yeah. And so, um, so that's what I did. And, uh, and then I just had all this research all over. And uh, so then, um, so finding out more about women in anger, they had a lot of the literature was about women who kill Mm. or women who were really, really violent, you know, they didn't really have more of the, I don't want to say minor, but kind of a in-between type of anger. Sure. And then they had the passive, you know, type of expression of anger for women, but they they didn't really have a middle ground. So this is where Um, I focused a lot on. And And so so is is this quantitative work that you did that came up that kind of deciphered those 13 kind of well, it, the qualitative, yes. Yeah, um, qualitative, yeah, yeah. Um, that's exactly right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So just, you know, through all these interviews, like, I don't know, it was probably two or 300 um, interviews and then putting them in, so to speak, and then, uh, or inputting the data. And uh, so, yeah, this is what came out. Oh, great. Um, and, uh, so wrote my dissertation, graduated. Um, and at this time though, I'm still primarily in the field of chemical dependency about, at Marin Center for Women. Yeah. And then I came across John Hamel's work, um, I don't know, on the internet. Cause one day I was like, there's gotta be who else in the field is doing this. Mm-hmm. So then he and I met and he said, oh, well, I'm starting to do research that, you know, it's not just men who are getting angry. I said, oh, I could tell you all about that. You know? <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> and then he and I started actually doing workshops together. We did uh-huh. trainings around the state. Uh-huh. And, um, and then uh, he ended up writing his book first um, uh-huh. that uh, was more on the um, professional side. 
Sure. I decided to write mine on the um, through Springer publication. Mm-hmm. Springer wanted me to publish a book, but on the professional end, and I was torn. I was like, Err. so I decided to do on the for the layperson. Yeah. And then his career really took off in that direction, and uh, you know now my daughter's getting older. It just didn't work. You know, that's why I said I had got like a nine to five job. Um, sure, sure. Yeah. And, you know, Margo also, my wife had a nine to five job. It just wouldn't have worked for, uh, uh, I mean, I, I would have liked to have continued, but it, it just wasn't sure. feasible to travel and do workshops. But well, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I really loved I've, it. It's great. I've had that also, that same thought or feeling about traveling and doing workshops and so on. It's like, really, what is what's most important right now? And yes, like, yes. kids also. And yeah, so you know, you understand. And even now, it was funny. I was talking to Margo um, when I was driving from school, and I said, "How are these parents doing this? They're starting them. I mean, at least over on this side, of the East Bay, school starting at eleven, and they're done at two. And she's like, can you imagine when we were raising Leah, like how that would work with either right. one of us? Oh so, gosh. yeah. Um, During this pandemic, yeah, people are figuring out and making it work. Yeah, yeah it's the same yeah. kind of thing. We've got that too. It's yeah. like it's over open for like two and a half hours. And it's like, you're so much time even just driving back and forth for that time. I know, right? <laughs> but, yeah. Um, yeah. But I did end up, uh, you know, being able to... Uh, I mean, John and I still did some work, you know, our kids, we ended up uh, becoming friends and uh, my daughter and I would go over his kid, his daughter, they were at the same age. No, he, his daughter, um, Aviva is probably a couple years older. But yeah. anyway, we spent a lot of time, yeah. you know, hammering out this work and, and writing and it was really an exciting time. <laughs> I want to circle back, if you don't mind, to the, uh, the again, the focus of the book of that, you know, um, uh, that that pain is, uh, uh, you know, the, and the way I've thought about it or heard about it is the idea of primary pain and secondary suffering that, you know, that, yeah, the, the pain is inevitable. There's nothing you can do about like, you know, the hurt or the sadness you'll feel when a loved one passes away or the stress, you know, and going for that job interview or so on. But that there's that kind of secondary aspect of the way we think or talk to ourselves about it and, kind of, you know, um, yeah, saying that, you know, like, oh, you're not going to do this, or why'd you screw up that way? Or, you know, like, oh, you know, that things are never going to be okay again, you know, and particularly the cognitive therapy aspect really kind of yes. maintains it. And um, I'd be interested to look up to, I mean, you know, the way that I've actually, where I've located that is in really in Eastern philosophy, and, you know, my, my undergrad minor was in Eastern philosophy, yes. and in Buddhism, that kind of idea that, that, yeah, there is that primary pain, that we feel that pain and being able to accept that pain and, and be with that pain and suffering, um, as well as the, the positive feelings and yeah. so on and letting them all be is kind of what we need to do in life, but the attempt to kind of uh, get away from that pain or feel like that's wrong or, or it's not supposed to happen or so on is where in lies the problems. Um, right. and, and you're so right on about the, um, because even though that's that third piece, um, the uh, the Buddhist piece is sometimes referenced to DBT. It really is from Buddhism, the mm-hmm. mindfulness, 
the um, acceptance, you know, like you're saying, that really does come from Buddhism or, or originated there. Yeah. And so the piece, uh, how they, uh, you know, they, it's basically what you talked about. Pain is inevitable. Okay. And the suffering is optional does bring in that CBT component, mm -hmm. you know, okay. So, uh, you know, your wife left you or your husband left you. Okay. That's really painful. But now what are you saying? So looking at thought records, what mm -hmm. are you saying to yourself? Yeah. So the suffering is optional is about, you know, how people make it so much worse by what they're saying to mm -hmm. themselves. And so doing that CBT component um, is big in terms of that yeah. particular um, saying, you know, what are you saying to yourself? Yeah. yeah. And I'm wondering, it sounds like you were kind of inspired by this. And I mean, you, this is part of the title of your new book. Yeah. And through your experience in the DBT part, can you say about why all, all the pieces that one kind of rose to the, to the top? I think it rose to the top because I was like, that's from AA. <laughs> <laughs> ah, so there was this kind of crossover between the two. And yes, and the then I thought, really well, that of course, there's a crossover. Ah. There's so much crossover. So that's really what started my mind clicking. It's oh, like, yeah. hey, at first I was like, hey, she's stealing that from AA. And then I'm realizing, wait, there's so much crossover. Mm. And this would be so beneficial um, for people in 12 step. Yeah. So that's where it really, yeah, that's where that sentence and then the light bulb went off about the crossover. Yeah, definitely. You know? um, well, it's so and, nice that uh, uh, there's a number of, you know, folks I've been interviewing for this podcast. And, you know, a, a theme I keep hearing is a lot of folks trying to find out how do we get these kind of tools, these kind of evidence-based approaches, things like that, that we know help to the masses, to, you know, people, yeah. not everybody has the time or the money for, you know, doing the therapy work or, you know, whatever it might be. So kind of really, how do we, you know, disseminate and, and make that available? So that's great that you're, you know, because AA is great. It's free. It's a community um, for folks that, that are, you know, that have that resource available. And so it's kind of, mm -hmm. you know, additionally, give more tools and, and have something that can be easily accessible. But what you just brought up is, is a really interesting point, evidence base. So originally I was gonna do my dissertation on the 12 step program mm. What and try to find quote, you know, they say it works if you work it, what's it? What, yeah. what, you know, oh my God, I could <laughs> not believe the, the pushback I got. Wow. You can't study that. I mean, I just talked to different people in my, my different groups and the resistance was incredible. Mm. And um, so that's another reason I do want to study after this book is done. You know, my hope is, is that a 12 step program will use or a 12 step group will use my book. Like they're using it. Like there's, um, 12 steps and agnostics. So they use that particular uh, book mm -hmm. or 12 step and um, I don't know, something else, but they, oh. um, or like um, the Buddhist, uh, ah, what's his name? Um, and they use his book in 12 step uh, mm -hmm. meditation meetings. Yeah. Um, so I would like to study how, how is this helping? So, yeah. 
people using DBT skills, is this helping? Mm. Because as you well know, 12 step is not evidence-based. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's no, not that there's no way, but there's, it's very hard to get in to, to see what's actually working or not working. Sure, sure. To, to measure that out, so. Well, yeah, there's some research on kind of pre and post, I think, or whatever, time in or so on, or doing the steps, yeah, but not necessarily like kind of deconstructing yeah. the process, you know, that's aspect right. of the research of what is yeah, working. Yeah, exactly. Um, um, yeah, that's exactly. So, so I, that's why I abandoned that idea. I was like, yeah. well, it's too bad because it does need to be researched. But anyway, yeah. so I am hoping to do um, some research to make it, uh, not make it, to have it be, I mean, DBT is evidence-based, but more now the combination is yeah. that evidence-based to work with yeah. um, alcoholics well, and addicts. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And, you know, I, you know, I know you do such great work in the clients that you're working with through the Institute and the children and the uh, couples and the families and the individual adults. And so it's nice, you know, we've talked of course and share cases and so on, but it's great to really hear kind of this, you know, all these aspects and how that plays into the way you're thinking and working and, and really trying to further the field. Um, so I really appreciate you taking the time today. Great. Thanks, Keith. And thank you so much for listening and uh, your unconditional regard. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us. If you're wanting to use this podcast to earn continuing education credits, please go to our website at therapyonthecuttingedge.com. Our podcast is brought to you by the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, providing in-person and remote therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. IAP provides training for licensed clinicians through our in-person and online programs, as well as our treatment for children, adolescents, families, couples, and individual adults. For more information, go to sfiap.com or call 415-617-5932. Also, we really appreciate feedback. And if you have something you're interested in, something that's on the cutting edge of the field of therapy and think clinicians should know about it, send us an email or call us. We're always looking for the advancements in the field of psychotherapy to help in creating lasting changes for our clients.